Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting, former Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, also former Assistant Secretary of Commerce, and before that, Oceanographer of the Navy. We're a monthly offering by the American Shoreline Podcast Network and brought to you by Coastal News Today. The American Blue Economy podcast brings together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies to expand awareness and collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges to the ocean economy, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership on keeping the blue economy at the forefront of American conservation and prosperity. Today's episode is a real treat where we're going to address the many benefits of biotechnology to the American blue economy. And it's based on my article in Real Clear Science from October 31st, where I looked at seven technologies revolutionizing our understanding of the ocean. Check that out. Uh, But before I begin, I'd like our listeners to know that our media team at Coastal News Today is looking for sponsors. And if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising or contact Tyler Buckingham at tyler at coastalnewstoday.com. So I'm really, I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. We have four of some of my favorite people at my former agency, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. And first up, we have Dr. Kelly Goodwin who is the omics lead for NOAA's Office of Oceanic and Atmospheric Research in La Jolla, California. Kelly, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Tim. I am so happy to be here today. Right on. This will be fun. And next in line, we have Dr. Luke Thompson. He is an associate research professor with NOAA's Northern Gulf Institute at Mississippi State University. And he's also with NOAA's Atlantic Oceanographic and Meteorological Laboratory in Miami, Florida. Luke, thanks for coming on board. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, it's great to be here. All right, cool. Okay. We, we also have Dr. Jeanette Davis. She's a marine microbiologist, also a best-selling author, and now a policy advisor to NOAA's Deputy Undersecretary. And she's coming to us, I think, from Silver Spring, Maryland. Uh, thank you, Jeanette. Thank you so much for having me. And are you in Silver Spring right now, Jeanette? I am in Silver Spring. <laughs> well, all right. Okay. And rounding out the show, going out to the West Coast, last and certainly not least, Dr. Krista Nichols. She is the Genetics and Evolution Program Manager at NOAA's Northwest Fisheries Science Center and is also NOAA's Omics Working Group Vice Chair from Seattle, Washington. Thanks for being here, Krista. Thanks so much, Tim. It's my pleasure to be here with you all. Well, we just have, this is just chock full of experts here. And uh, I want to begin with Kelly because Kelly really introduced me to the field of biotechnology where and, and the blue economy because of my background primarily being physical oceanography, hydrography, and meteorology. The whole world of biology and, and fish and critters was uh, something I, I really adored from afar, uh, but never really got into scientifically until I was with NOAA. And it was where Kelly and I got together to help uh, advance and build NOAA's omics strategy and strategic plan. So Kelly, if, if you could introduce our audience to this one part of biotechnology, omics, uh, just let our listeners know what that is and why it matters. 
Well, thanks, Tim. I, I think, uh, you know, to start off with a, a lot of things we talk about in the ocean or climate or the world, it really comes down to biology, right? Why do we care, you know, whether conditions are the way they are is because all biology can exist in a relatively narrow uh, frame of temperature or salinity or, you know, fill in the blank, every kind of, of parameter that you think about. And to a large extent, our ability to live and survive is encoded in our genetics. And so that is, um, that's how we get to where we are. So we all really care about biology in the end, no matter what you're doing, whether you're an atmospheric scientist or a physical oceanographer or whatnot. In the end, it all comes down to our livable planet and sharing the planet with um, the organisms that we love and the organisms that we use. And if we want to know where they are and what they're doing and how they might be able to adapt to all kinds of different change that's going on in the world, we can start to get a glimpse um, into that and to ask those questions about them and ourselves by knowing about our genetic makeup. And that's how we got interested in the omic strategy as an agency. Right. And well, no, and thank you, Kelly. That's really a nice high level uh, motivator and on this, on this whole podcast. And, and, uh, but I, again, let me ask you one more, if you just don't mind, omics is probably like French or uh, so other to a lot of our listeners right now. Could you just tell us, tell what omics is and that, that, that you oversee at NOAA? So omics is, is a, a broad term describing a bunch of different technological techniques or methods or approaches to look at genetic molecules. So your DNA, our RNA, proteins, small molecules that are produced that are called uh, metabolites. And, and so it's a, a suite of different laboratory and technical approaches. The main one that most people now know about coming out of COVID is, is sequencing technology. DNA or RNA sequencing technology. And, and you hear about that all the time when, if you're talking about like uh, this COVID strain or variant or that sort of thing, that's really talking about, you know, the genetics of the COVID um, uh, either, either from the vaccine standpoint or from the infection itself uh, regarding the virus. And so, that when we talk about omics, it's this way to capture, instead of just saying DNA, it's a way to capture all the different types of biological molecules that we interrogate to understand biology. Right. And this is so interesting to me. And you had this really interesting quote when I was reading about you today. I, yes, I did. I did go online and stalk you, if you will. But you have a great resume. You were the NOAA OAR, Office of Ocean and Atmospheric Research Employee of the Year last year. Congratulations. Uh, but I like how you said that there's so much of this planet that's alive and we depend on that we can't even see. That's what you're talking about. Oh, yes. Now, from that, we really get into the world of microbes. And um, what's really fascinating about micro microorganisms is less than 1% of microorganisms existing in the world have ever been cultured. And in the old days, uh, really before we had the ability to do DNA sequencing, 
we had to culture them and, and see, well, what, what can they grow on? What do they look like? You look under a microscope and go, oh, well, that one's a circle and that one's a curly cue and that one's kind of oblong. And that was sort of the, the extent of description. And then we learned to be able to sequence genetic molecules. And all of a sudden the world started to open up in a different way where we basically got the Rosetta Stone to biology and, and started to speak the language of biology. And, and now our understanding uh, is very much through the lens of, of that code, which is still four letters, A, T, G, and C uh, for the DNA code, but you put them together and you have the blueprint for every organism on the planet. That's just so amazing. I, I want to go. Thank you, Kelly. I want to go to Luke. because You both co-authored a, a paper that received an award and recognition. I remember I was still with the agency for outstanding scientific paper. And uh, and Luke, I remember even sending you a, a note about this. Could you? Sh and it was about micro the microbiome. Uh, could you share with our listeners what that paper was about and what you accomplished uh, with it? Yeah, Tim. Thanks. Um... So Kelly gave a really nice introduction to what omics is and, and what, you know, how we use omics to study microbes. So this was a, a project that I started um, when I was at University of California. And then I, I brought with me when I came to NOAA. And it was a um, study where um, different researchers from all over the world would contribute samples of microbial communities or, or environmental samples that contained microbes. And so we used a standardized um, method to sequence the um, just one part of the DNA of those uh, microbes. Um, and, and then that gave us like a little barcode for each organism that we could, we could then um, compare to a database. And, and so it gave us this really nice um, picture of the microbial communities in say um, the ocean or in soil or in uh, the gut of a cow or the gut of a human, et cetera. And, and so um, we ended up with this really nice um, map of who is, is found where. Um, and this has been used by countless researchers to, to further understand um, the patterns that, that, um, that govern where microbial communities are found in, in, in the earth. It's amazing that you were able to, Luke. That was great. Such a large effort, a global effort, really. And uh, and I thought that was uh, I thought this you know to be able to collaborate at that scale, so large on something again that's so small we can't even see is sort of just brilliant. And uh, and thank you for that. In fact, I, I want to go now to Jeanette Davis uh, again, working with Noah's deputy undersecretary. But you, your degree is you. You, uh, I believe, you in your degree, you were working with microbes for drug discovery. Is is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And um, yeah, thank you to both Kelly and Luke who gave a great introduction on omics and kind of narrowing that down to more marine microbiology, um, which is my specialty. And you know, Kelly talked about earlier this coding for life. And um, as a marine microbiologist, I essentially was looking at uh, very specific 
organisms that produce interesting molecules, um, usually metabolites that they were using for defense, that we can then use for drugs, um, particularly drug discovery. And the project that I worked on, um, we already knew that this was a promising anti-cancer compound that had been extracted from a marine sea slug in its algal diet. And so we had the structure of that compound and we pretty much worked backwards and said, what are the possible microbes that could live in association with this organisms? Um, and what would the coding look like? And we pretty much worked backwards to discover uh, an intracellular bacterium that is a producer of an anti-cancer compound. That's, wow, how powerful is that? I've seen other examples of that. And think about that. This this amazing biotechnology application is can save lives, is saving lives. And, uh, and of course, uh, when you talk about uh, the pharmaceutical industry, it's this giant blue economy application. And, um, and again, getting into different applications, I'd like to go on to Krista in Seattle with the NOAA's Northwest Fishery Science Center. I understand now you've used genetic and genomic tools, I believe, to um, explore and assess populations of rainbow trout. Am I right on that one? That's correct. Um, rainbow trout and steelhead trout um, are the same species. Steelhead migrate to the ocean as juveniles, spend time out in the ocean feeding, and then come back to their natal streams to spawn. And rainbow trout are the same species, but they spend all of their lives in freshwater. And so that's really where I got my start in omics. Back in the day before omics was actually omics, we were asking questions of what is, is there a genetic basis that makes some fish go to the sea and some fish stay? And it's an ongoing interest and passion of mine that we continue to dissect with genomic tools. And, well, and so I'm interested in that, Krista. Like, so uh, can you just explain that a little further? Are you, you're trying to find like the genetics of what's what in the genes of a, a an a rainbow trout uh, that makes them want to go to the sea or not. You're finding the gene sequences. Is that correct? That makes them that, that behavior. That's true. So we have taken multiple approaches. One is just to say, okay, here are uh, here's a population that supports both migratory and non-migratory. Oncorhynchus micus is the genus species name. Um, within those populations, what is the genetic difference? Is there some signal in their genetic code that tells us why some fish may go and some some fish may stay? We can look across populations too to see, you know, is the genetic signal we find within populations populations for that difference in life history, the same in other populations. Um, but we can also use more functional genomics to understand, um, not at the DNA level, but say at the, um, the transcribed level, the, the gene expression level, yeah. what sort of physiological mechanisms might be promoting that difference. Um, seasonally, um, developmentally, what are those triggers that we can key into on that omega? level that may give us some clue as to, again, why do some fish go and some fish stay? So we've used some um, gene expression studies to get at what are some of those genes that may um, promote one life history over the other and different fish um, within a stream uh, in that sort of life stage leading up to when a normal fish would decide to migrate versus stay in their freshwater environment. That's interesting. Now, forgive my ignorance, Krista, but 
Uh, are you saying then that you you know when you talk about gene expression, is it possible that an environmental stressor will prevent that and maybe result in an individual and in a species not following you know, like the the behavior that your the the gene was I guess that is normally associated with. It's true. The environment. This is a really tough. Um, Traits, if you will, of salmonids that's difficult to study, in particular in this species, because there is a lot of flexibility and whether or not a fish migrates and stays. And some of that ah. is is determined by the environment. In you know, in the absence of any kind of anthropogenic stressor, right? Food availability, um, temperature, all of those things can play into whether or not a fish is a physiologically ready to migrate to the ocean because it takes a lot of energy to do. Yeah. that mm -hmm. versus staying in the ocean or staying in the freshwater do they get enough of the food and resources they need in their local freshwater environment in order to um, eventually become mature it's a historically an evolutionary trade-off right you know go to the ocean it's riskier there's more predators in the ocean um, potentially could be a harsher environment depending on what stream a fish grew up in versus staying relatively safe but if there's not enough resources to get what you need or what the fish needs to reproduce in fresh water there's a trade-off there and so absolutely there's an environmental component and um, spoiler alert there's not a single major region in the genome associated with whether or not steelhead migrate versus stay um, there's some evidence in different parts of the range that there is but as you look more inland and you look more north northward um, kind of latitudinally that association breaks down we find many genes um, promoting together with the environment that a fish grows up in uh, that life history of whether or not a fish would migrate versus stay. Gosh, that's just great. And of course, the blue, thanks, Krista, the blue economy uh, implications are giant because of we're talking about fisheries in general and that this, this technology is allowing us to understand fish and their distribution and, uh, and, um, and then therefore allow us to better manage them. Uh, really brilliant. And that is what turned me on so much to the whole omics field and work with Kelly. Coming back to Kelly on Noah's omics strategy and strategic plan. And I, I guess, let me back up even a little bit more, Kelly, and talk about genomics just briefly or ask you a question. We earlier, our last podcast, we talked about, uh, uh, we explored artificial intelligence and its contributions to the blue economy. And we worked with one of your colleagues. I had Greg Dusek on and he, like you, helped lead NOAA's artificial intelligence strategic plan and strategy. And is it fair to say that uh, our genome, ours, other species, is like an algorithm uh, or, or, if you will, a code for how an individual not only is uh, made up, but also how, what they, how they behave? I, I would say uh, that's a pretty good analogy. Um, you know, it's... It's funny, I often think whenever I'm redoing my passwords, because your passwords are always due, and I'm always trying to think of new passwords. And I, oh, and I hate I, that. And I often think of the genetic code. There are things like stop codons and, and you know, not to give anything away. But I have, like, a certain method to change my passwords. You know, I ended a certain way or started or in the middle. And, and I, every time I do a password, I think, huh, this is what our genes are doing too, right? They have these... The, you know, you have your, your letters, your A, T, G, and C, and then they put them together in a, in a particular units, um, you know, and those units 
or the blueprint. It says, you know, okay, do this process, make this protein, you know, build this cell. And, and then, you know, there's just layers and layers of complexity. And just like you think about computers, you know, we're using now, and that's all in zeros and ones, right? Just think about the complexity of our life that we do of zeros and ones. Biology has four of those things, right? Has God, the, yes. And, and then, it, and, and so there's all these layering. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, the idea that we're organic machines, I don't think uh, I'm the first to think of that way. Plenty of sci-fi people, I think, have explored that. But there's, <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of truth to that. To that. You know, the difference is that the level of mystery and unknown for us, the amount of, of, of things we haven't unlocked. I mean, you were talking about the, you know, microbes. You know, why did we need the genetic code? because so many of them we can't, we don't have in hand. They are the hidden majority, right? Um, yes. And so, and that's just talking about like species, like this thing that is a thing. We didn't know it existed. And, and we're even discovering like whole animal species every time we go down to the deep ocean. Every time ocean exploration does a, a major dive into a new area, they come up with a new species, something you can see. And, and then the amount of stuff that we can't see. And then on top of it, when we go into the genetic code itself, and this is where things like artificial intelligence and machine learning really come in, there, it's big data. It's massive amounts of data, which is the other reason that we started looking at this as an agency, because that's the, the double-edged sword of a transformational technology. It, it, it brings something to you at a cost. And for us, it's the cost of dealing with mass massive amounts of data. But even when we do deal with that data, a lot of it, we just go, well, according to the pattern of, of these letters, this looks like a gene. We know from the pattern because the patterns are, are replicated just like machine code, but we don't know what the gene does. And, and so the amount of, of, of what we call dark matter um, in, in both biology and biodiversity and the genetic code is truly amazing. I, I would say there's more we don't know than, than we do know. Yes, exactly. That's why this is so exciting, Kelly. And, and that those new discoveries we're seeing every day is uh, just makes, makes every, every day exciting. Uh, uh, let me go to Luke though. I have a more, so you, in, when I refer to your paper, that Kelly was a co-author with on looking at uh, analysis of microbiome samples from world researchers worldwide. I'm I'm curious, uh, and these are these are things we can't see. So how do you determine the information? How did all these scientists around the world and, and with your organization help? Uh, how do they do it? What is the information they give you on something you can't see? Yeah, Tim. So. There's different ways. Um, ultimately, it's DNA sequence information. Um, and so there's different ways to sequence DNA. Um, you can, and you can do it on, a, on an individual um, organism. Like if you, um, so one example is if you do your 23andMe profile or something. I've done that. Spit into a, yeah, right. So you'll spit into a tube and they will take that and they will, extract the DNA from it, from all the other saliva and everything that's in there. And they will use a, um, like a microchip called a microarray and the DNA will bind to different parts of that chip. If, if it's this, a matching sequence and that will allow you to genotype, 
um, your genome at around a million different locations. Um, so we do sometimes use those kind of microarrays, um, but more and more we're taking all of the DNA, extracting it in the same kind of way, and then um, chopping it into pieces and, and, and sequencing it in a method called uh, shotgun sequencing. So that's another term for that is metagenomics. Um, oh, right. Um, mm -hmm. But what we did in the Earth Microbiome Project um, paper that you're referring to was another method um, using PCR or polymerase chain reaction. Um, this is a similar kind of method to what is used in some of the COVID tests, the, the PCR COVID tests, where they, uh, they amplify part of the, the COVID or the SARS-CoV-2 uh, genome to see uh, if it's there or not. And if, and if it amplifies after a certain number, if they can detect it after a certain number of cycles, they can say it's there. And if it takes too many cycles, they say, well, it might just be at the limit of detection. But in any case, that's to quantify um, DNA or RNA. In this case, we're gonna sequence it. So we take, we amplify a given part of the genome of all the microbes. So um, every organism on the planet has uh, something called ribosomal RNA. It's a molecule uh, of RNA that is inside every ribosome, which is what makes protein in your body um, and in the microbes uh, cells as well. And there's a gene for that called uh, the ribosomal RNA gene. And so we've um, scientists um, going back to Carl Woese and Norm Pace and others, they discovered that this part of the ribosomal RNA gene um, is conserved across all organisms. And so you can, which means it's, it's, there's parts of it that are very little changed over billions of years of evolution. And so we can design um, what are called primers, which will bind to that gene in the DNA. And then we amplify, we do that PCR where we make billions of copies of the DNA. But in this case, um, we're make, there's lots of variation in those different copies because there's variation in the microbes. And so we end up with this pool of DNA, and then we put that on a DNA sequencer, and it uses some uh, fluorescence and different colored lights. And we have cameras that look at the different colored lights that come off the DNA in a very precise way, um, developed by Illumina, which is a San Diego company. Um, and, and that gives us um, tons, of, tons of data, which is now in those A's, T's, C's, and G's that Kelly was talking about. And so then we have, uh, we have, now we have data on a computer. And so then we have algorithms that we can analyze. We can compare those sequences to a database and, and get some idea about what they are, um, especially if they've been, if those genomes of the, the whole organism has been sequenced before, then we'll know what it is. Um, and then there's a lot more analysis that comes and that's where our team of researchers really got busy because then we're trying to understand what it all means. And, and, um, lot of different tools and, and methods were applied there. My gosh, it's amazing how much uh, in this field, uh, ha everything has built on other uh, advances and you're standing on the shoulders of giants, as they say. Uh, it's just remarkable. In fact, and so one of the things about uh, studying DNA, which I think was inspired me, I saw that in NOAA Fisheries, we were using environmental DNA, DNA in the environment that assess, for example, the distribution of species in a given area by just scooping up seawater and doing that kind of analysis. And that is so powerful. Normally, it takes ships $35,000 a day to steam and 
do surveys with trawls, which are destructive. And now we have this alternative method, at least to augment. And that's what's happening today. Um, and, and other examples of this biotechnology, which is just so brilliant, is, uh, and I want to go to Jeanette now, Jeanette Davis. Uh, I understand that you have been using environmental DNA to uh, investigate invasive species. Can you talk to that? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, invasive species, I, I guess, let me just start off um, just for the, the listeners are non-native species that are introduced to an area um, that causes ecological and economic harm. Um, in fact, in the U.S., we spend over a billion dollars or so each year just trying to mitigate invasive species and also um, just trying to uh undo some of the damage that they have caused. So it's 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 really a major issue here in the United States and abroad, to, to be fair. Um, but going back to the eDNA that you mentioned, one of the powerful things about that that technology is that at best or simply it it it's able to just say the presence or absence of an organism. And an invasive species management, when you are looking to, you know, prevent these organisms, the, the thing that you really want to focus on is early detection, because before it gets out of hand, you want to be able to detect it early. And the great thing about using eDNA and looking at presence and absence, we've already kind of talked about this, is that it allows you to determine if an organism is there before you even see it. I often compare this technology, you know, to like CSI or crime scene investigations where a detective goes on a crime scene and hopes to find the DNA left behind by a suspect. And so we do the same thing with invasive species management. We hope to see the DNA left behind by an invader before it really colonize and really cause ecological damage. And so it's been really great um, being able to work on this technology with invasive species management. And I think it's also one of the things within, um, you know, biology and management um, that you can quickly go into test something. And it's something that we are really trying to communicate with managers to get them involved and get them to support this technology and how they can use it to make better management decisions around invasive species. Gosh, I love that. Uh, I like your comparison with of invasive species with criminals. That is just uh, <laughs> terrific, Jeanette. Very, very appropriate. I know because of people I work with assessing a lionfish invasion in our coral reefs, in Florida, flower garden banks. It's just terrible. And uh, along our, our southeast coast. Uh, good. Well, another great application that I, I spoke to was fisheries uh, stock assessments. And I, I'd like to go now to Krista Nichols. Krista, you're with NOAA Fisheries, and I understand you're the lead of NOAA Fisheries Genomics Strategic Initiative, seeking to use omics and eDNA to augment fisheries assessment. Would you mind sharing with our audience like what, what, what that involves and what you're up to? Sure, sure. It was a, a strategy really led, um, you know, from our headquarters to say, can we use some of these advanced te technologies, omics specifically, to help provide additional information for our fisheries assessments? So every year, our stock assessors, stock modelers will use data from catches, from surveys to say, what is the status of, the, of these stocks um, of a particular species or of multiple species? 
species. And so at the time of the investment in, I think it was fiscal year 2019 initially, they were really looking to say, how can we use these newer technologies to sort of augment the types of data that we can collect in support of these stock assessments? And so the strategic initiative was sort of three-pronged. Um, one is to understand more about the population distribution of some of the assessed species in the ocean. Um, that ranges from things like, um, at least at the, at the Northwest Fishery Science Center, things like hake, things like lingcod, things like some of the rockfish species, of which there are many. Um, can we use genetics and genomics to understand their stock structure, uh, which is really the foundation under which stock assessors need to model abundance. They, those stocks may have different life histories, different growth parameters, different um, parameters that they use to sort of as assess the abundance distribution and status of individual stocks. The second prong of the strategic initiative was to use environmental DNA to understand can we quantify a specific species rather than not rather than going out on the survey and using acoustics or nets can we also use eDNA to quantify the abundance of individual species so in 2019 and every year since then we've collected water samples on the Hake survey to get at just that question i have i often borrow from a close colleague that says eDNA is just another type of net, right? We drag nets through the water, we look at acoustics through the water, and now we can also collect water or collect water and, and filter out the cells and the DNA from that water to look at what organisms live there. Um, and so the third prong of our strategic initiative, and it's a really important one that several others have mentioned here, is omics generates a lot of data a lot, a lot of data. And so the third prong really is providing the resources to analyze all of that data, whether that be people or whether it be computing infrastructure to make those analyses happen on in all of the realms that we've been talking about here today. Wow, I love that was really good. eDNA is just another net that I wish I I wish I had that when I was working with Noah. I would have used that in my speeches. I'll, <laughs> I'll make sure I carry that forward. Uh, that was great. And uh, and so these are really powerful applications in, in fisheries. Uh, I'd like to go to Kelly now as Kelly and I were working on the NOAA omics strategy where really I just tried to shape it and align it with other strategies. And Kelly put in with your Krista and others on the omics working group, the, the real, um, the, the real content and uh, Kelly, how about sharing with our audience other applications of omics like water quality, et cetera, that, uh, that are just so powerful with the, these techniques? We list them in, in the omics strategy. So, um, he, you know, th this is one of the hardest things to explain in your elevator speech, because as we talked about, omics encompasses everything biological. And the, 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 there's a lot of biology in the ocean, right? And um, and so the applications, if it has biology in it, omics applies to it. So you name it, whether it's um, making sure we have sustainable fisheries because the, the habitat is productive, um, whether that habitat is being... Um, uh, attack from pollution and and the animals can't adapt to the pollution, whether it, it is being pressured by 
uh, higher temperatures or increased acidity that is affecting an organism's ability to keep its calcium shell, whether there's you know too much nutrient in the water, um, the invasive species coming in and changing the food web. Uh, it, and, and then, and those are sort of the obvious things, but even when you think about aquaculture, from every side, like let's say you have a fish pen out in the ocean and you wanna know what the ecosystem impact is from all that feces raining down. Well, you can do an omics analysis of the sediments underneath, it, you know, is what's, what's living under there? Is there pathogens in there affecting the environment? Are there pathogens affecting the fish? How is the, the feedstock that you're giving it affecting the health and product? Um, is it really rich in fish oil so it's better for people? Is it, um, is it healthy in its pin or is it spreading disease? I mean, you name it. Um, Biodiscovery, you know, the new pharmaceuticals that could come out and then vice versa. What happens when we extract things from like manganese nodules in the deep ocean? Well, what was living there? Well, how do you figure out what's living there? Well, you can look at the, the profile. You can look at the organisms, the full spectrum of organisms from viruses to vertebrates, from microbes to mammals. You can do that all by looking, using some sort of omics technique to figure out where organisms are, uh, what they're doing, and, and how they might have the ability to adapt to these pressures. Because not only are we looking at you, you know, the, the consequences of change, but also the resilience, the ability to be resilient to, to shifts. And a, a good example of this is, you know, you may have heard like a lot of coral is, is in trouble globally. Corals are, are really struggling. Um, but yet there are some coral species that are managing to eke out living in, in the you know, in the urban, in urban environments off Miami. And we, we go, we ask them using omics, how are you doing this? How are you managing to do this? And could we maybe use this capability you figured out to help other species that aren't doing so well? And so those are the, the types of questions. I'm, I'm actually having a hard time finding a biological uh, related mission that omics doesn't touch. You, you name it and there, it's probably there. Um, and including a lot of, um, like you said, blue economy, um, whether you're looking at better feedstocks to help aquaculture, better breeding that you could do to, to make aquaculture or the ecosystem impacts from aquaculture, all of those things, you can use an omics lens to help you. Oh, yes. It's just everything in the blue economy. Coral, we had a whole episode on coral. We've had episodes on fisheries. Everything we're mentioning is uh, invasive species and, and uh, even um, natural infrastructure. It's really interesting. You're right. It touches everything. There's one I didn't mention, even consumer protection. Um, I think we had done a, a, one of the things we did in some listening things that you and I did. You know, we learned that, uh, believe it or not, a lot of um, seafood products may not be as advertised. Right, right. And one Things that um, you can do with omics is to check and, and make sure that consumers are getting what they paid for. And that also that the seafood that they're eating has been um, sustainably harvested. 
Right. We, we, uh, I know, I believe I've talked about the seafood import monitoring program at NOAA being a really important element of our combating illegal fishing, which is a national priority. It was when I was with you all in NOAA and it still is today. And, uh, yes. And I have, I have to say, I'm getting some great, great phrases and lines here. I, from Kelly, it's, uh, you said from, uh, viruses to vertebrates and microbes to mammals, I will use that too. So thank you for it. Um, well said. Let, let, I'd like to go to, to Luke Thompson now at the Northern Gulf Institute. And uh, I, I wanted to just sort of pull something out a, a little bit out of order here because I, I can't help um, but introduce this topic whenever I have an episode that I can. And it's uh, you were with the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology for a time. Uh, and it, I believe it was the Red Sea Science Center. Is that correct, Luke? Yeah, the Red Sea Research Center at 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 Kaust is the acronym it, it goes by. Mm-hmm. And did did two questions? Did you do? Were you doing microbiology or biotechnology? One and two. Did you ever get to scuba dive the Red Sea? Uh, yes and yes. Um, so oh, tell us about it. Yeah. So um, the my work there was was primarily doing the kind of work we're talking about. So microbial metagenomics to understand the, the microbes in the Red Sea. Um, so the Red Sea is interesting. It's, um, it's uh, quite um, sunny and hot and uh, the salinity is on the higher end of what you would find anywhere. Um, so it's a rather challenging place, um, but the Red Sea is actually doing quite well. You know, um, the, the microbes are adapted to that, that kind of environment. Um, and the coral reefs are in pretty good shape too. Um, you know, one of the challenges to coral uh, coral reefs is fishing and overfishing because the the fish maintain the balance of the ecosystem. And so there there is fishing in the Red Sea from from Saudi Arabia and um, and Jordan and Israel and Sudan and and Egypt, um, but it's not the level of fishing pressure that maybe you would find in, in other regions. And so that helped, but the, the diving was spectacular. Um, most of my diving was recreational, although I did um, assist some of my colleagues who were, who were coral reef biologists and fish, fish biologists um, on some of their projects. Um, but it's, it's, it's very clear. It's um, it's very warm. There's lots of, you know, Indo Pacific, uh, fish and, and corals, um, yet some very, you know, endemic, unique red sea species as well. Um, so it was, it was fantastic. Wow. That's just great to hear. I'm, I'm dying to do it. I have not gone there yet. I have been diving in the Arabian Gulf and that was a uh, kind of similar, very warm, a uh, beautiful coral. And, uh, uh, so looking forward to following your lead someday and coming back and sharing a, a, a dive story with you. Um, uh, that's great, Luke. Well, I'd like to go to Jeanette and maybe shift gears a little because uh, we have such a diverse and fascinating panel. And Jeanette brings with us something that is really interesting. And, and I remember learning about this when I met you. Uh, you, are a, you are a book author, a children's book author, mul- multiple times over. And I'd like you to share with our audience uh, maybe how your experience in microbiology led you to want to communicate to the next generation and inspire them in science and what your book's name is and and that whole element of who you are. Yeah, sure. Um, So, yeah, I, I... 
my books were inspired by being a scientist generally, um, particularly being a, a woman of color in the field of science and growing up loving science, loved being in nature and just exploring everything around me. Um, I'm convinced that I'm probably I was probably the only child who loved bumblebees and playing in beehives, <laughs> but I loved just the outdoors. And, you know, growing up, I would never say that I wanted to be a scientist um, because while I loved science, I, I just didn't necessarily see people who looked like me in science or didn't really understand the language of science. So while I love plants, I would never say I want to be a botanist because I was never exposed to the science of botany. Um and so I wanted to create something to give young people the language to understand science and really appreciate the outdoors and all of the science that happens all around them. And I wanted to do that in a diverse and inclusive way. So as I was looking into children's literature, I noticed when we explain science, we do it um, by you know showing pictures of objects or animals. And I said, it would be great if young people could see themselves in science? Why don't they have on lab coats? Why are they not looking into microscopes and swimming and doing all of these things that we do in nature that are a part of science? And so my very first children's book is Science is Everywhere, Science is for Everyone. And I have it. it focuses. <laughs> yes, you do. You have an autographed copy of it. <laughs> um, and I, I, it, it, it means exactly that. I just wanted young people to know that science is all around them and they get to be included in the conversation of science. And so if you're a young person who loves baking cakes or cookies with your parents, that's chemistry. If you, you know, love um, rocket ships or space or the ocean, you know, I introduce oceanography. Of course, I introduce microbiology. Um, and so it, it looks at over... 10 different sciences, including genetics and explaining that to children, understanding that they get a portion of their genes from their from both of their parents and how it makes up the sum of who they are. Um, so I try to do that in very simple terms so that young people could have that lens of science. And then my second children's book is um, exclusively focuses on oceanography, and that's Jada's Journey Under the Sea. And I really take young people on this journey under the sea and introduce them to marine life, but the benefits of, of the ocean life, as well as ways that they can better protect and preserve um, the ocean and the planet around them. I love that. That's just, that's just wonderful. I, uh, I think we're all called to do that. And certainly as we get more experienced and accomplished, it, you know, it's just the right thing to do to uh, pay it forward. So uh, wonderful, Jeanette. That's great. And, uh, I wish you luck and hopefully this gives you, um, gets you some more sales. How about that? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> okay. You're welcome. And uh, I'd like to go to Krista now, Krista Nichols. And this is uh, again, a little bit uh, off, not off topic, you know, nothing's off topic here, but, but um, I was, I was interested in the fact that you were an associate professor at Purdue. That is that correct? That's right. Yep. And, and now you know, you've been with Noah over a decade and, and, um, you're you're stepping into these. You've been in these leadership positions, like the vice chair of the Omics Working Group and leading this Noah Fisheries Genomic Strategic Initiative. And so you're you're very much a leader in this field in the agency. And I've always paid attention to uh, our leadership and uh, really tried to support Noah leaders like you. 
And um, I'm curious about your thoughts on this, this as with this topic, how do we encourage a next generation of scientists, whether getting into NOAA and, and following in your wake or, or in the, just in the field in general? I'm, I'm, what are your thoughts about that? Um, great. And I, I actually think it's a great segue from some of the books that um, Jeanette discussed and thinking about how to get young people interested to be able to see themselves in these roles. And it really is about being curious, being outside, being curious about the world that you're in, um, engaged in. Um, and how do we, you know, kind of encourage that next generation? One of the most exciting things, I have two young children and I'm asked on occasion to give, um, to come into the class to talk about the salmon that they've had hatching or to participate in science day. And what's so exciting about omics and the science that we do now is that you, the, the possibilities of how you explore it with omics tech, techniques are just absolutely endless. You know, you can see a pond of water and you can go into that pond and you can look at all the microscopic critters that live there under a microscope. Um, but you can also just take a filter of water and you can say, okay, I looked at all these things and I identified these 20 different species of microscopic critters, but what does the DNA tell me? Does it, does it tell me the same thing or something different? Um, so I think that's really where I, I find it so exciting. And it doesn't just stop there in terms of thinking about um, engaging those kids that are excited to be outside and explore nature, but there's an element of data and data science um, and computational biology and computer science and AI and ML and machine learning that really could boost this field even further, in particular in the life sciences, in our science field where we're not working on humans, um, we're working on all the other things. And every day is a different question on a different species um, from a slightly different perspective. Perspective. And so there's a broad need of a, of a diversity of kinds of um, interests, if you will, in participating in the science that we do. And I think that that could be appealing to a really broad group of young people, depending on whether or not they like, you know, chasing after frogs and playing in the beehives, as Jeanette said, or if they like being stuck at their computers. There's there's something for everyone here in um, exploring the biology in our world, um, depending on uh, one's interest. That's great. You, you, I'm sold. How about that, Krista? <laughs> uh, you know, in fact, this is serious. This is real, uh, Nat. Uh, I, I, when I, I came to NOAA, I believed that I had a fairly good understanding of, of the mission set. I was involved with everything NOAA does, uh, my prior career in the Navy, except this, biology. And I, I was just wowed from day one. In fact, I don't know if I met you when I had my very first visit to Northwest Fishery Science Center in 2018. It was early, too. It was like early 2018. Did I meet you then? Yep, I was here, but it was, you know, the usual, there's two seconds to introduce yourself and then you're off to the next person. Gosh, yep. <laughs> I know that one. It was I, it was very memorable to me because I that was my first experience with, with biology and, and marine biology. And I it was so floored. And that, that really did, though, that inspired me to do the things I did in the area, like work with Kelly and you and the Omics Working Group. And uh, and so thank you for that, making that experience just a such a positive one. And, and thanks for what you're doing for encouraging a new generation of 
marine biologist to, to come forward. Um, I, I'd like to go to Kelly now, and I, I have a kind of a specific question for you, Kelly, as we kind of near the end here. Um, we talk about gene sequencing, and I, I, I want to make sure I was correct in saying this. Uh, I knew that next generation gene sequencing was allowing these incredible changes, and I often referred to the original human genome project. And can you can you compare in terms of maybe the time and money spent what we can do today with gene sequencing compared to what was done with the human genome project? Geez, I might I might need I have that written down somewhere, but I would say you know it it's a thousandfold maybe to pair, to to what it was. Um, you know you can the you can do the human genome now, your whole human genome for about a thousand dollars. And by the way, that was a goal. That was a specific goal set out um, from the Human Genome Project as a long-term goal. I don't remember the year that it was reached, but it was reached. Um, I think it was probably, maybe someone can speak up. It was, it was a lot, lot more than that. Oh, it, it was it was millions. And Dr. Francis Collins of the, of the National Institutes of Health, who I worked with on something different, not was with Noah, yeah, and, and and it was ten years possibly in the making. So that's that's the order of magnitude is probably more than a thousand fold because in terms of t- money spent and time it takes, and that's that's why I was so wowed by this. But yeah, that's thank you. And 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 um and Luke talked about a little bit you know the the companies um some of the you know you talk about biotechnology and and, and we've talked a lot of, about different types of biotechnology, but at the root of it, there is this sort of fundamental commercially available technology, which is, is sequencing. And, um, and that has gotten uh, more and more data for less and less money. And and that's what brings you to the big data thing. You know, uh, once upon a time, it, it was very, very slow and very expensive, and it took a long time to piece the data together step by step. And um, some really smart people just figure figured it out. And that's it's a technological revolution. So we are we are getting the benefit in the environmental sciences from a technological revolution, mostly motivated by human health. Um, and, and that, that's sort of a theme for us because, you know, environmental science just doesn't have the same, uh, market corner of the market. We don't have the same sort of deep pockets that, that the medical sciences do, but we take advantage of, um, the technology, technological advancements that they make. And then we take them to another level because, um, and this is where it gets tricky because a lot of our needs then get very specific when we need to know about uh, the right whale genome and the salmon genome and all the microbes that you can't see in the whole entire ocean genome. And, and, and those are where we, we have to sort of figure that out on our own with our own little shoestring budgets uh, to, to meet the mission uh, of NOAA, which um I wrote the went down, Krista. We aren't working on humans. We're working on all the other things, and and I love that. That's that's going to be my new quote. Oh gosh, that's good. You're and, right. And it's a really it's a really broad mandate, and our missions are really broad because um, humans use our oceans and coasts and Great Lakes in such a wide variety. They have 
so many ecosystem resources coming out of it from tourism to love of nature to you know, uh, indigenous people making their livelihoods off fish and shellfish to fishermen, coastal fishermen and deep sea fishermen uh, to biopharmaceuticals. There's so many different things that our oceans and Great Lakes provide us. And in the end, they're all built on biological organisms and their habitats. Amen. Wow. Great. That's just a great, great blue economy uh, summary there, uh, Kelly. Thank you. Uh, good. All right. Well, hey, uh, um, I, I do. I want to go to Luke one more time and talking about these incredible applications. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious. You're here. You're in Miami. You're very close to my daughter who is going to Nova Southeastern. And I, I know there's just a really giant amount of um, uh, ocean activity in that region. And I, I didn't get to ask you what you're doing now. Is, uh, is there anything uh, that you're doing with the Northern Gulf Institute or AOML that just uh, you want to highlight for our listeners in this field? Yeah, thanks. Um, we're doing a lot. <laughs> and um, it, it really builds on the, the microbiome stuff that I talked about earlier. But we're applying those methods to... A lot of different applications. So um, we do have some work with with fisheries in the Gulf um, related to what Krista was talking about. Um, but also in the Gulf, we're looking at um, using omics to identify signatures of ocean acidification, which is an emerging issue, um, as well as um, carbon flux and the biological carbon pump and how um, photosynthetic activity in the surface ocean may be contributing to the sequestration of, of carbon in the deep ocean. Um, and then we've also got some projects in the, in the Florida Keys looking at um, biodiversity monitoring over um, many years now. We've got samples um, almost a decade now looking at uh, biodiversity. And then we're starting a new project looking at um, coral reef restoration in, in the Florida Keys, a, a project called Mission Iconic Reefs, which is a, bringing lots of people together across NOAA and then we've got um, some global ocean stuff, and, and principally there is a program called GoShip, where we're we're introducing eDNA sampling and microbiome sampling on that, and that's a massive effort across many universities and and NOAA and other organizations globally to study the basic oceanography of, of the ocean um, all around the globe, and we're we're now adding DNA monitoring to to that effort. So it's pretty. It's pretty exciting, um, and I just wanted to to touch back on the 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 growth of genomics since the Human Genome Project. So, to give you a, a comparison in the the Earth microbiome world over um, a span of ten years, we went from you know having a few hundred samples and a and a few ten thousand sequences to you know we were able to collect thousands of samples and generate over two billion sequences. So we over a span of ten years we we were able to increase the amount of samples we could process by a hundred and the amount of sequences by a hundred thousand. Golly, that's just great. And, and all of the tools that went, went into that. And, you know, it's interesting that one of the groups that sequenced the human genome was, was uh, Craig Venter's uh, company. He had a private enterprise that was sort of going head to head with the, the public right. um, effort. And, and the two things he did after that, which both touched on what we're talking about today, was one is he, he, his group tried to figure out if you could introduce uh, DNA into an empty cell and get it to 
um, to show the expression or to show the phenotype of that, that organism. And that's getting at that AI kind of booting up a cell idea. But the, the big thing he did was he sailed the ocean on his yacht to sequence the microbiome of the ocean that he, you know, he had this vision 20 years ago that that was the next frontier. So it's pretty cool to go from the human genome to the ocean microbiome and to, you know, to, to make that connection. It's, it's, it's pretty clear those two worlds are, are closer than we think. Absolutely. That's great. Thank you for sharing that there, Luke. That's just wonderful. Um, Jeanette, uh, coming back to you, and I know you're not doing a whole bunch of microbiology in your role as a policy advisor to uh, Ben Friedman, a great friend of mine who I love dearly. Um, but I, I, So let me ask you this. When's your next book coming out and what's it about? <laughs> oh, you put me on the spot. So um, <laughs> the next book, um, I think the next one will probably be coming out sometime next year. Um, I, I'm usually on this cycle where I'll do, uh, you know, the first year and then the following year I'll translate it into different languages. So my books are now in Spanish. Um, so I've been able to accomplish that this year and I'm looking uh, forward to next year, uh, focusing on uh, another book. And this is a, again, a part of the Sciences Everywhere series. And you're right, I'm not doing as much microbiology for the deputy undersecretary, but I would like to just add this, this one quick thing as we talk about the blue economy and omics. Um, I think it's really important to also think about the policies that are in place and really thinking about how these tools support management decisions. And so in my current role, uh, I've, I've been really uh, an advocate um, on the omics side now, you know, going from helping to do some of the omics at NOAA and work on the strategic plans. And now in this role, really making sure that leadership understands the importance of omics and how we use that and, and approach uh, biology as we know it and how that, you know, really goes across a lot of different NOAA missions and mandates and such. So uh, I see my role more so as taking the the technical knowledge and making sure that leadership is is aware of what's going on and how they can make better management decisions um, based on the science that's available. Well, that's a great point, Jeanette, and funny because when I was the deputy administrator and acting administrator, Part of the reason I pushed forward these science and technology strategies, including AI, omics, uncrewed systems, cloud data, and citizen science, was for that, to inform better policy. And uh, it, right on, I saw the value of these incredible advances that were happening across our entire agency. And I knew we could do better. We could make better decisions if we advance them and, uh, and encourage the entire agency to work together. Uh, love it. Thank you for bringing that in there. And uh, good, good. And and so Krista, one, one more for you. Like I asked Luke, I, I'm curious what you've been up to. I've been following you and your colleagues for some time. And I think Mark Strom, is he still working with you? And what's your plans for going forward? Um, well, maybe we would all ask you, do you have another day to chat? Um, <laughs> there's a lot going on. Oh, um, gosh, I Mark, know. Mark is actually now retired, happily. Um, oh, good. Good for him. Yeah, uh, sailed off into the sunset um, and was a, get a big cheerleader together with those on this call today and sort of bringing omics to light and 
the tools, uh, how um, impressive they can be to, you know, put into operations to collect, you know, new and interesting data that has implications for, as Jeanette said, important policies and management. Um, what are we doing now uh, in our program? It ranges a, a, a broad breadth in the omics realm from understanding marine mammals, their distributions, what are they eating, um, to how can we use environmental DNA to um, understand the biodiversity, abundance, and distribution of fishes, marine mammals, and all of the critters that they depend on, and everything in between. Our lab also, what somebody brought up a little earlier, um, how important some of these methods can be for the seafood import and monitoring program for IUU fishing. We also are the marine forensic laboratory for the NIMPS Office of Law Enforcement, and so these tools are, they're pervasive, right? They're important for so many different things from enforcement to management to ocean exploration and you know understanding the new things um, that we haven't discovered previously that could be used for drug discovery and all of the things we, we're not in that realm but um, it, there's there's so many things that that we're up to these days um, uh, on my desk you know currently are anything from understanding species identification to population boundaries and again using eDNA to kind of categorize where our fish um, and what is their abundance in the marine environment relative to our fisheries surveys wow wow that was a long list i know i know you have more <laughs> so krista <laughs> i think that really uh, tied it all together really well so let me just do one more round and ask any final thoughts um, first going back to kelly goodwin who is the omics lead for noaa's office of oceanic and atmospheric research um, any parting thoughts for our listeners kelly Oh, just to let people know that you know, NOAA is working with a lot of international collaborators. We're in the middle of the UN Decade for Sustainable Ocean Development. And one of the endorsed programs within that UN Decade uh, endeavor is called the Ocean Biomolecular Observing Network, or OBON. And that's the idea of, of applying this power of omics, specifically eDNA that we just talked about, to being able to understand the ocean biodiversity globally, to get a global picture instead of just tiny little separate pictures, and using things like uncrewed systems to make that vision happen. Um, Maybe some of the listeners are familiar with a thing called Argo, which is a system of floats that gives us global profiles of temperature and salinity. And the goal is to do the same thing using eDNA, that we would be able to uh, ask biological questions by looking at biological molecules on, on a large scale. And eDNA, for the first time, makes it possible to do large-scale biological observations in a cost-effective way. And so we're not doing it alone. It's a, a whole global community moving forward with these types of approaches. That's great. Definitely a rising tide lifts all boats. I'm glad you're taking a team effort on that, Kelly. Uh, Luke Thompson, Associate professor, Research Professor with NOAA's Northern Gulf Institute. Uh, anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I guess I would just say um, for any of your younger listeners, you know, biology is such a huge and exciting field. Um, it's it it's really you know there's so many opportunities to get involved. Whether you're interested in the ocean or 
biomedical or environmental or biotechnology, um, you know, taking a few biology classes, learning a little bit about genomics and omics and, and DNA sequencing and, and maybe a computer science class here or there is, you know, really opens a lot of doors and um, creates a lot of opportunities. So, um, you know, take advantage of those, um, those courses or online courses or, you know, there's so many great resources now. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun and, and just a lot of opportunities out there. That's great encouragement, Luke. I, amen. I agree to that too. Uh, and Jeanette Davis, again, Policy Advisor to the Deputy Undersecretary at NOAA. Any final thoughts for our listeners? Yeah. Um, well, one, I want to second everything that everyone already said. I, I was I was thinking I was going to say something on international efforts. And then I said, no, I can say something about youth being involved. And then Luke did that. So that's perfect. Um, I guess the thing that I would uh, add to the conversation is just around climate change and how it is a big crisis um, that we're, we're all facing. And there's been so much you know, not only talk, but energy around it and research and science that's going towards that. And I see omics as another tool to help address that. And so, you know, we talked about a lot of different things and how omics is important and and, and how we're able to leverage this technique to approach biology. But it's also a, a great technique for tracking biology and seeing who is going where and what organisms are doing as we're constantly in this changing environment. So I would just leave on the note that saying, you know, omics is great all the way around for a, a blue economy, but it's also going to play a really important role as we uh, look at climate change and how our changing environment is, is, is changing. Right on. Very good points to conclude with, Jeanette. Thank you. And then wrapping it up with Krista Nichols, the Genetics and Evolution Program Manager at NOAA's Northwest Fishery Science Center. Um, any last uh, th thoughts or insights for our, our, get, our listeners? Just very brief upvote for all that Kelly, Luke, and Jeanette just said. Um, and it's been really a pleasure to have this conversation with you all today. Oh, well, that's so, thank you for that. And uh, what, a, what a nice way to, to close the show, Krista and, and everybody. What, an, what a great group of guests. And I just want to thank you all. This, this has really been an awesome show. And, uh, and just your exceptional expertise in this field is, is just really valuable uh, in this latest episode of the American Blue Economy podcast, where we looked at the many benefits of biotechnology to the blue economy. Please join us for our March episode where we'll look at drone technology in the blue economy. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Thank you for joining us, shipmates. I look forward to getting underway with you next time.